Thank you, Truett, for this opportunity to be in this pulpit at your weekly chapel. Uh, what an honor it is for me to, to come. I see so many friends, uh, in addition to students, friends from around the state of Texas who have, have come. Uh, some of you from a good, good distance away. I don't want to call names because I'm sure I'll leave somebody out, but you'll forgive me if I will uh, mention one person who perhaps came farther than anybody else, and as far as I can tell, is the only person in this chapel who is into her second century of walking around God's good earth, Virginia Boyd Connolly. Thank you so much for coming to... uh, Join us today from Abilene. It's so good to have you with us. Not long ago, we finished celebrating our fourth century of being Baptists. Since John Smith baptized himself and then others in 1609. I mean, you got to start someplace, right? These Proto-Baptists were in Amsterdam, Holland, having fled England to avoid religious persecution at the hand of King James I. How ironic it is that, that we cherished the Bible translation named for him for so long. Yes, we, we baptizers, so-called, were born in the struggle for religious freedom. Well, despite our astonishing diversity and and many disagreements on other issues, Baptists have fought the fight for religious liberty, for others as much as for ourselves. We have taken seriously the liberty for which Jesus himself broke the yoke of slavery and set us free. This was our birthright in the early 17th century, our rallying cry today, and I pray our legacy four centuries from now. Now, it's important that we remember our Baptist heroes and retell their stories if our commitment to religious liberty is to remain passionate and vital for generations to come. God bless Thomas Helwes. After leading a, a breakaway group back from Holland to England, Helwes established the first Baptist church on English soil. Helwes then, then authored a, a cutting-edge treatise on religious liberty called A Short Declaration on the uh, Mystery of Iniquity in 1612 and sent a copy of it off to King James himself. And in his inscription, he wrote the audacious words that you, O king, are a mortal man, not God. And have no power at all over the immortal souls of your subjects. Well, for his trouble, Helwes and his wife Joan were thrown into Newgate Prison there in London, where they languished and later died. Hooray for Roger Williams! Called by some the Apostle of Religious Liberty, Williams came from England to Massachusetts Bay Colony in 1631. He preached the the notion that faith cannot be dictated by any government authority, but must be nurtured freely and expressed directly to God. And he advocated a, quote, hedge or wall of separation between the garden of the church and the wilderness of the world, end quote. 
Well, the Puritans in Massachusetts were so outraged by all of this that they kicked Roger Williams out of the colony, and he trekked down to what would later become Rhode Island and began what he called that lively experiment, lively experiment of religious liberty, and founded the first Baptist church on North American soil. We Virginia Baptists love to cheer on John Leland, an evangelist preaching in Virginia during that heady decade of the 1780s. Leland boldly advocated for religious liberty and the separation of church and state and played a a pivotal role in convincing James Madison of the need for a, a specific guarantee protecting religious freedom. And Madison made good on his promise to further ensure the rights of conscience, including these first 16 words in the First Amendment to the Bill of Rights. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. We at the Baptist Joint Committee revere J.M. Dawson, our first executive director, after serving as pastor of First Baptist Waco for 31 years, came to Washington, D.C. in 1946. Dawson was instrumental in, in convincing the United Nations General Assembly in 1948 to adopt the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Article 18 of the Declaration proclaims the right of freedom of thought and conscience and religion as the goal for all of humankind around the world. And that language has informed almost every national constitution that has been developed over the past 70 years. For me to extol the memory of George W. Truett indeed would be preaching to the choir this morning. Suffice it to say that Dr. Truett collected up this heritage that we've been talking about and articulated it oh so forcefully time and time again, but most notably perhaps from the east steps of the U.S. Capitol building, two blocks from the Baptist Joint Committee's offices to an estimated crowd of some 10,000 in May 1920. And we have a picture of that up on the wall at the Baptist Joint Committee. You have to come see it sometime. I hope you will. And we can name a dozen more. But it's not just about history. It's also about theology. Our understanding of religious liberty involves no less than the freedom to worship God and to follow Jesus without efforts by government to advance or inhibit religion. Someone else's or our own. The freedom that we enjoy is biblically based. The scriptures make clear that that God created us with free will. God's decision to make human beings in God's image, the imago Dei, necessarily implies the freedom on our part to say yes or no, to choose for or against a relationship with God. And for that relationship to be genuine, it must be voluntary and and based on love, not in any way coerced or based on fear. The New Testament, too, 
In Galatians, Paul writes, as you heard read earlier, for freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Yes, Paul was railing against the Judaizers' attempts to deny freedom from theological and ecclesiastical strictures, more so than efforts by government to limit religious liberty. But Paul's clarion call to the Galatians has inspired generations of Baptists to fight for freedom from state-imposed limitations on the exercise of religion. And if Paul issues the call to freedom, Luke gives us a lesson about how that freedom is to be exercised. In Acts chapter 4, Peter and John were arrested for preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. In the Sanhedrin, a high court with civil as well as religious jurisdiction over the country's internal affairs admonished them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John, they repudiated civil authority because it sought to interfere with the proclamation of the gospel and said, whether it is right in God's sight to listen to you rather than God, you must judge. For we cannot keep from speaking about what we have seen and what we have heard. The rights of conscience take precedence over the demands of ecclesiastical or governmental authority. It's important to point out, however, that this freedom is not unlimited. For Paul continues in the fifth chapter of Galatians, Brothers and sisters, do not use your freedom as an opportunity for self-indulgence, but through love become slaves one to another. For the whole law is summed up in a single commandment. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Our freedom in Christ can never be separated from and must always be limited by the responsibility that we have one for another. Freedom and responsibility must always be held in tension. And they really are two sides of the same coin. As Baptist journalist Bill Moyers has aptly put it, our Baptist beliefs do not make for lawless anarchy or the religion of lone rangers. They aim for a a community with moral integrity, the wholeness that flows from mutual obligation. Our religion is an adventure in freedom within the bounds of accountability. Isn't that nice? An adventure in freedom within the bounds of accountability, end quote. And there's another limitation of sorts on our freedom. Because we owe duties to Caesar, don't we? Jesus himself affirmed this dual allegiance when he talked about rendering to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And in Romans chapter 13, Paul declares not only allegiance to the state, but plainly says that the authority of the state is divinely ordained. And if Paul's teachings applied to the, to the ham-handed Roman rule of the first century, how much more 
should they apply to us today living in a robust constitutional democracy? We Baptist Christians have a duty to be good citizens. So yes, sometimes limitations on our freedom legitimately can come from government. What a thing for the executive director of the Baptist Joint Committee to say. But that old adage is true. My, my right to swing my fist ends where your nose begins. The First Amendment freedoms, including no establishment and free exercise, are not absolute. The wall of separation of church and state is not impenetrable. Sometimes it looks more like a chain link fence. You cannot exercise your religion in a way that that harms or prejudices others. You don't have a free speech right to shout fire in the proverbial crowded theater or under the press clause to publish malicious lies in the newspapers, even about public figures. Your First Amendment right to assemble and petition the government for redress of grievances is subject to reasonable time, place, and manner restrictions. And shall we all say it, more than a year after that terrible day at Sandy Hook in Connecticut and a half a dozen times since then, all of this goes for the Second Amendment too. Well, we Baptists, more often than not over the past four centuries, have gotten this about right. For example, Article 17 of the Baptist Faith and Message of 1925, amended in 1963, succinctly captures the historic Baptist understanding of religious liberty and and the proper relationship between church and state. And in rapid, staccato fashion, it says this. God alone is Lord of conscience. Church and state should be separate. The state owes every house of worship protection and full freedom in the pursuit of its spiritual ends. In providing for such freedom, no denomination should be favored by the state more than others. The church should not resort to civil power to carry on its work. The state has no right to impose penalties for religious opinions. The state has no right to impose taxes for the support of religion in any form. A free church in a free state is the Christian ideal, end quote. And thankfully, the Southern Baptist Convention a decade and a half ago did not change this article when it took a meat axe to others. But today, these lofty principles are often observed as much in the breach as in the following not just by some Baptists, but by the culture at large. So the Baptist Joint Committee has its work cut out for for us. We continue to educate about our tradition of religious freedom and to fight to apply it, that heritage in, in the crowded intersection of church and state in contemporary American life. We work hard to to ensure that government maintains a healthy distance from religion. The theological principle 
as we Baptists phrase it, soul freedom, that, that God-infused liberty of, of conscience, and its ethical expression in society, religious liberty for all, are protected by the constitutional constructs of no establishment and free exercise in the First Amendment. And these twin pillars of our constitutional architecture require that government neither help nor hurt religion. Rather, we want government to be neutral towards religion, turning it loose to flourish or flounder on its own. In other words, government should accommodate religion without advancing it, protect religion without promoting it, lift burdens on the exercise of religion without extending religion a benefit. So how do we at the Baptist Joint Committee, day in and day out, balance this one and the other? Well, for example, we support voluntary student prayer but oppose prayers delivered to a captive audience by a state actor like a public school teacher. We support efforts to teach about religion in the public schools, but deny the right of public school officials to read the Bible devotionally or otherwise lead in religious exercises in the classroom. We applaud tax exemption for religious and other nonprofit organizations, but reject vouchers and other forms of governmental financial aid to support the teaching of religion. We recognize the obligation of churches and other religious bodies to serve the poor, but dispute the propriety of subsidizing those ministries with government funds. We understand government may require churches to comply with, with reasonable building and safety codes, but reject attempts by zoning officials to micromanage church ministries. We accept the responsibility of government to ensure the civil rights of all citizens while defending the autonomy of houses of worship to govern their internal affairs differently. And on and on and on we could go, balancing these dyads. In short, every establishment clause, no, we utter to keep government from promoting religion should be accompanied by a free exercise, yes, to ensure the rights of conscience. Dean Kelly, the, the great Methodist religious liberty advocate, of a generation ago with whom I had the, the privilege of working for several years when I first went to Washington, used to say, government may and sometimes must get out of the way of religion, but it should never be allowed to get behind and push. Isn't that a nice way to think about it? Government may and sometimes must clear out the way, get out of the way. Of religion. Let it do its thing. But it should never ever be caught getting behind to give it a push, even a friendly push. No, the best thing the government can do for religion is simply to leave it alone. 
eternal vigilance over the activities of government by the Baptist Joint Committee and by all freedom-loving Baptists is the best way to honor our heritage of religious freedom and pass it on as a legacy to the generations to come. May it be so for another 400 years and more. Amen.